The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, looking ahead to this weekend's presidential elections in Brazil and reacting to more developments in the Argentine debt crisis. But first, Gabriela Canchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. One of Venezuela's charismatic youth leaders met his end this week. Police found the bodies of Robert Serra and his partner, Maria Herrera, in their home in Caracas. Authorities say they had been shot to death. Serra was 27 years old and one of the youngest members of the Venezuelan National Assembly. He was a strong ally of President Nicolás Maduro and a youth leader. Serra gave a passionate speech on the floor of the assembly a day before his murder. We have three things on our side. We are constructing a true socialism. We have a leader in unity, and we have the majority of the state. The United Nations says Venezuela has the second highest murder rate in the world, behind Honduras. In Mexico, authorities captured the head of one of the largest drug rings in the country. Mexican authorities say that Hector Beltran Leyva was finally captured. They are performing DNA testing to confirm his identity. The United States have offered a reward of up to $5 million for information leading up to Beltran Leyva's capture. Beltran Leyva became leader of the ABL cartel after its founder. His brother was killed. The ABL cartel is responsible for trafficking arms and drugs, kidnapping, murder, and torture. This will be the latest in a string of high-profile arrests of drug lords in Mexico if Beltran Leyva's identity is confirmed. Argentina's central bank governor resigned after less than a year in office. Juan Carlos Fabrega will be replaced by Alejandro Vanoli. Analysts say he is more in tune with the economic policies of President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner. Argentina is facing an economic crisis with inflation at 40% and a debt default to U.S. creditors. Also, the government decided to devalue the Argentine peso by 18% this year. Fabrega spoke out against the government's heavy fiscal spending and advocated for tougher measures to curb inflation. President Fernández had criticized Fabrega's handling of the bank and his resignation is viewed by many as being caused by pressure from the president. The country's stock index lost 14% of its value after the resignation. We will have more on Argentina's financial problems later in this program. The Cuban government stated it will take action against a state company for releasing two perfumes named after famous leftist leaders. The two colognes are named Ernesto and Hugo after Che Guevara and Hugo Chavez, respectively. The colognes were released in Havana. The company states they obtained permission from the families of the deceased leaders, but the Cuban government refutes that claim. The Cuban state newspaper Granma said the project is a serious error and that the symbols of revolution are sacred. The cologne named Ernesto has a woodsy, citrus scent with notes of talcum powder, while Hugo has a softer, fruitier fragrance. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Sao Paulo, Brazil, 
the city with the second most listeners of this program this year, Obrigado. Which of course brings us to this week's presidential voting in Brazil. The latest polls have President Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party ahead in the polls with 38%, not enough to win in the first round of voting. She's opposed by Aécio Neves of the Social Democracy Party at 19% and Marina Silva of the Socialist Party at 25%. Some experts have predicted that if Silva could get to the second round of the race, she could upset Rousseff. We asked Professor José Antonio Chaibud at the University of Illinois for his analysis. Chaibud is with the university's Institute for Brazilian Studies and the Klein Center for Democracy. We spoke to him in Champaign-Urbana via Skype. What we haven't been talking about is Marina Silva, and the mm-hmm. socialist candidate. She has come on so strong since she became the candidate after Eduardo Campos died, and she was the vice presidential candidate. It has really changed the nature of this particular race. What are your thoughts about her? I mean, she, it's clearly a very interesting phenomenon, and uh, it's one of these instances in which you know an accident really can change um, um, the course of history. I mean, you know, I don't mean it in these grandiose terms, but you know, certainly changed the course for her. You know, she was supposed to to take sort of a back seat in the in the Eduardo Campos um, um, ticket, and uh, and now she's the front runner, and she she does represent a challenge to uh, both Dilma and Aécio Neves. Um, interestingly, today the polls in Brazil show that um, Dilma has increased her uh, intentions of vote. And, and ISU has also increased, reducing the, the uh, Marina Silva's lead, which means that there was a chance, there is a chance that um, if the election were to be held today, that ISU would be the one who would go to the second round and not Marina, which I find interesting and I find not really unexpected because I feel that uh, a lot of her growth had to do with a little bit of sympathy for the death of, uh, of uh, Eduardo Campos. And, um, um, but anyway, it's, it's, everything is so close that um, it's hard to tell. Now, what, what about her? Um, you know, she's clearly a, a, a little bit of a, of a mystery, I believe. She has very opposite um, um, political um, positions, you know, she's very conservative socially. Um, she is an evangelical, and this is probably helping her. Um, she stands in the very, you know, the more conservative side of most issues, such as gay marriage and abortion. And This is a yeah. bit unusual, though, for, for a socialist candidate to yeah, be conservative and, on those social issues. Yes, which also places, you know, raises this question about whether... Well, first, if anyone today is a socialist, and second, if she is a socialist, um, you know, I think she is in her economic policies, maybe the her, her um, more like a security policies. By security, I mean income security policies. She is more on the left, I would say. She is on the left in terms of the environment. Um, she is a very outspoken, and you know, she made her career. As a as a as a member of the the uh, you know environmental uh, movement, but you know to be perfectly honest with you, I I do not know exactly where I would put her 
in terms of you know in this if there is a continuum between being a socialist and being a you know a pro capitalist uh, candidate, I'm not really sure I would put her in that camp of socialism. Um, there, you know, she belongs. She was running under the, the socialist party, but it was more of a coalition because she's trying to um, create her own social movement, um, the Heiji, and so it was more of a. It's not that she was the socialist candidate, but she was the um, a, a member of a coalition between the two parties. Some people characterize her as a green candidate, and I have heard others talk about. So far, religion hasn't been at the center of this particular election. But so far, um, some people think that that if she makes it to the second round, that religion will become much more what we see in the forefront. That um, the whole issue of her conversion to an evangelical religion, she was raised partially by nuns, um, that this will become the center stage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't know if that is going to become. I mean, I do not see what she would gain by bringing this issue up in the in the second the campaign for the second round. Well, maybe her opponents might. But her opponents may, and 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 that's I believe. I mean, she clearly would be speaking of it if if it were if she thought it was something that would help her. Um, I feel that. Um, um, Although, you know, it is, you know, I find it, the, the, the thing that I find fascinating is, you know, in the, this week is that this uncertainty about who is going to go to the second round and more is that nobody really knows where the votes for the third place candidates will go. Um, so it's not clear to me if Marina's voters, if she doesn't go to, this, to the second round, if they're going to be voting for Dilma or ASU. And so I think they're going to be divided there. And so, you know, it would be an interesting race to observe. You, <laughs> or, mentioned, you mentioned there again President Rousseff, President Dilma Rousseff yeah. of the Workers' Party and Ayesio Neves of the Social Democratic Party. Some polls that I've seen say that the president will end up in first place, but not enough votes to carry the election in the first round. Yeah. Um, and so it really is this fight for number two? I think so. I mean, I think at this point, um, it is very clear that Dilma is not, that the president is not going to win um, outright. And so she's going to have to fight uh, a second round um, election. And, uh, and so the, the, I think that the, the real dispute there right now is for the second post and who is going to be the one there. And so what is the issue are there any issues uh, we've talked about in the past that Brazil's economy is a, in a bit of a free fall right yeah. now, officially in recession, but mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be the issue. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, the, the economy is not so much the issue, the, um, the, the social policies, you know, the Bolsa Familia and other more distributive policies, they are not the issue. Everybody is in agreement that, you know, no candidate, dare say that they're going to phase it out or, or reduce. Um, I think the issue is more an issue of incumbency versus, you know, which, you know, which is, it's perfectly legitimate. I mean, I personally, for example, I don't know if your listeners care about that, but I am a supporter of the Workers' Party, but I would be hard-pressed to vote again for Dilma, the president, just on the grounds that, 
I do not believe that it is good to have a party governing for 16 years. You know, I, I believe in alternation. And so um, I like to see somebody else come into power. So I, I wonder if there is a little bit of that. Except that because the opposition, you know, those who, you know, they are divided, um, it is not really clear that, um, um, that Dilma is facing a real, you know, as, as real a, a threat as she would have faced if Eduardo Campos were alive. Although this is a counterfactual that anybody can make since he's not alive and so nobody can prove it. Because you're openly a supporter of the Workers' Party, we have talked on this program before about the evolution of the Workers' Party. Yeah. It's not the same party it was before President Lula was, was elected to, to power. And, and is, is some of the dissatisfaction that dissatisfaction with the changes with the party? Uh, my impression is that no, that this dissatisfaction played a much bigger role in Lula's first government. And then later on, it became the PT became a, a party of government, and you know had governed and had governed relatively successfully, um, you know with very important ups and downs, but you know and mistakes. But um, um, so my I mean the party clearly changed, and uh, uh, you know ever since it it was created in 1979, but um, um, it, it it became a party you know like. A party with a with an ideology that is, you know, with a position, a policy position that's distinct from its main rival, which is the PSDB, the party of Aécio Neves, and um, um, but it's no longer a party that embraces a full, you know, coherent ideology. And I do not, I personally do not see this as a negative, um, and I find that you know many people. Um, um, see it as a positive, and the only reason that PT was able to win, in my view, after four attempts with pretty much the same level of votes, is just because they were able to move a little bit to the, towards the center of the of the spectrum. And um, but on the other hand, they did implement policies that were clearly distinct from the policies implemented by the previous government. And so, you know, not a policy of rejecting what had been done, but a policy of expanding and maybe shifting um, orientation a little bit. And I find this to be very healthy. And, uh, and maybe, you know, and that's where my personal view enters, maybe I think it is time for, to let somebody else come in and shift, you know, directions a little bit and adjust things a little bit. And, you know, and then maybe the PT can come back to office some other time. We're going to find out where this goes this weekend. What, yeah. Why haven't we talked about that you think it's important for those of us watching to know? One thing that appalls me is that if you read the newspapers in Brazil and, you know, our conversation here, everything focuses on the presidential race and the, at most the gubernatorial races for the big states. Sao Paulo, Rio, Minas, some northeast states southern states. But amazingly, nobody talks about the distribution of seats in the chamber of, uh, you know, in the Senate and in, and in the lower chamber, in the Camara Federal. And I think that this is as important and, and as fascinating as, as the result for the presidential election. And the two, in a sense, come together. Thank you so much. You're very Jose well. Antonio Chaibud of the University of Illinois Institute for Brazilian Studies and the Klein Center for Democracy. 
our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we'll untangle the latest in the Argentine debt crisis. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This summer, while this program was on hiatus, Argentina's debt crisis blossomed anew and the country went into default. It all stems from the U.S. Supreme Court decision not to accept Argentina's appeal of an order from a federal judge in New York of how to pay off creditors from its default in 2001. This week, that judge, Thomas Griesa, found Argentina in contempt of his court and promised a penalty would be decided soon. As we heard earlier, President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner also forced out her central banker and accused the U.S. government of trying to kill her. Meanwhile, her government offered up more than $160 million in bond payments to creditors if they would accept them in Argentine pesos instead of dollars. We spoke to Professor Leslie Armijo about the complex debt crisis. Armijo is with the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University in Oregon. We reached her there via Skype. Here's the first part of our two-part interview. The behavior of Argentine um, officials has not been very helpful. I mean, they tend to be kind of making inflammatory statements in court. Um, clearly, both the Judge Griesa and the appeals court judge thought that the Argentine officials who were there in court were, were being obnoxious. And there was no real need for them to be. Argentina's debt default in July, which was the second uh, in recent history, the first being in 2001, is important for three reasons. One, because it continues to make it hard for Argentina to borrow on global markets, global private markets. So far, Argentina has managed, but it makes it, it makes life harder for the Argentine government and for normal, everyday people in Argentina. Uh, two, this event is important because it gives impetus to a move to um, change some of the very rather technical rules of financial markets. The, this is the uh, collective action clause in bonds. Um, but in the long run, the most important implication of this is the fact that it undercuts the attractiveness of U.S. financial markets and thereby undercuts the attractiveness of the whole global system centered on the dollar as the reserve currency. So let me talk about Argentina then. That's the first one. Um, Argentina returned to democracy in the early 80s, and the new government was uh, preoccupied with getting the military back in the barracks. They did that pretty successfully, but meanwhile they had hyperinflation. Then uh, President Carlos Menem came in and his way of reacting to hyperinflation was to do something drastic called the convertibility law. This was 1991. 
what that did was essentially uh, impose on Argentina a very strict fiscal diet. One Argentine peso was to be equal to one U.S. dollar, and the central bank would not issue pesos except when they were backed by dollars. The consequence here was that inflation was over. Argentina started to grow. Everyone was delighted. Menem was a hero. The IMF loved Argentina and was happy to loan it money, as did other people. And the Argentine government kept saying over and over and over, we will never break this. We will never break this. You can trust us. Lend us money. We will never break this. Of course, um, when you say things like that, then sometimes things get out of balance in a complex economy. And the, the short version is in the late 90s, according to the real value of the peso, it was becoming increasingly overvalued. What that meant was that it was great for Argentines to buy things from abroad and there would be, uh, they would actually get more for their money than if they bought them in Argentina. The country developed a trade deficit and all of this put pressure on the currency, but the government kept saying, no, we're never going to devalue, and the IMF backed them up. And by 2001, it was becoming increasingly clear that things were going to blow up. The government resisted making any uh, minor adjustments, and uh, the straw that broke the camel's back was the IMF refused to liberate uh, what's called a tranche or a, a sort of a, a piece of a loan that it had promised in mid-2001, and as a result, Argentina defaulted on the debt. Early 2002, uh, the link with the dollar was broken, but everyone knew that was going to happen, and there was a huge devaluation. Okay, so now what happens? The government can't pay the debt. For two reasons. One, it doesn't have any money anyway, and two, the debt is in dollars. And so after the devaluation in terms of pesos, it, it's worth a lot more. Therefore, what you have is the largest sovereign default in history. According to the, to the sum that was owed then, it was $82 billion. If you read about it in the paper, sometimes people will call it $95 billion. Sometimes they'll call it 100 That has to do with how they're calculating the interest and penalties. But I'm going to use the $82 billion. In any case, huge. That means that Argentina can't borrow any more money from global markets. It also defaulted on um, $6.7 billion in loans from foreign governments. Everyone predicted disaster, and it wasn't a disaster. Argentina apparently got away with it. In fact, it kept right on growing after a huge crisis. Um, by 2003, when Nestor Kirchner came in, Argentina's growing again. Uh, grew very smartly, basically thumbed its nose at the market. And Argentines were like, wow, this is great. <laughs> and many people were saying, it's going to crash, it's going to all fall apart. Argentina was lucky. There were there were various reasons why it was able to um, thumb its nose at global markets in the, the first decade of the 2000s. One was 
Chinese demand for Argentine commodities like wheat and, and meat. Another was that um, Argentina was successful in borrowing from its own citizens, that is, the domestic um, substituting domestic government debt from, for international government debt. And a third reason was that there were some uh, foreign partners, foreign government partners, that were interested for their own reasons in helping out Argentina uh, in 2006 through 8, this was mainly Venezuela. Uh, more recently, this has been China, very recently. So for whatever reason, Argentina's gotten away with it. That, um, meanwhile, uh, what about all these creditors? Argentina in 2005 made an offer uh, of a, that they would switch the foreign debt for uh, bonds payable in pesos uh, representing about a 60% haircut, a haircut meaning a, um, a lesser valuation. So they were worth more or less 40% of what the original, but that's better than nothing, right? The defaulted bonds hadn't been paid. So um, after the 2010 restructuring, approximately 92% of all the creditors, that is owners of 92% of the debt, had said, okay, fine. Argentine uh, officials were hopeful they could return to global markets. However, um, they were not able to. And one of the reasons they were not able to was because of the so-called holdout creditors. The folks who have agreed to, to this restructuring they're going to take pennies on the dollar for what they're actually owed. They're going to take, well, they're going to take about 40 cents on the dollar of what they originally thought they would get. On the other hand, um, investing in the bonds of Argentina and other emerging economies is a high, high risk, high return kind of investment. So, I mean, you hear about uh, uh, Italian pensioners who were holders of these bonds, but one could also say, well, you know, some fund manager sold them a story. This is not like investing in U.S. government bonds. The holdout. The holdouts. The Argentines called the, the, the vulture. No, no, no. The holdouts, the holdouts are simply people who didn't, um, who didn't accept the two restructurings. So they're not getting anything. Now, what do they do? They Obviously, they didn't accept the restructurings, uh, either because they were just mad or because they thought they would get a better deal from someone. But meanwhile, their, their assets are worth nothing. The vulture fund, the so-called vulture funds, are hedge funds who specialize in um, what is known in the financial markets as distressed assets. They buy things that are currently not worth anything. And their basic strategy is to take those assets and go sue the blank out of the original borrower. One percent of those bonds are owned by the vulture funds or the so-called vulture funds like Elliott Capital Management and so on, who have been the activist ones suing Argentina the New York judge, actually, the first judgment is um, he gives a judgment in favor of this 1% who's suing them. 
pursuing uh, the Argentine government and says, Argentina, you've got to pay them. Um, otherwise, you're in contempt of court in my jurisdiction of New York. And Argentina says, well, no, we can't. Judge Griesa, he says, okay, fine. Argentina doesn't seem to have any assets. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that any bank or financial institution that does business with Argentina is going to be in contempt of court if they continue to do that business. That concludes our Skype interview with Leslie Armijo of the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University in Oregon. We'll have more in a program devoted exclusively to the Argentine debt crisis later this month. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.